everyone, welcome back to the Never Chain Talk Show, a Life Without Limbs production. I'm your host, Nick Vujicic, and we're so glad that you've decided to join us. This February, we'll be talking about the unborn. Today, I'm joined by an amazing advocate, Stephanie Gray Connors. Stephanie is an international speaker, originally from Canada, who began presenting at the age of 18. She's since given over 1,000 pro-life presentations over two decades across North America and globally. She also regularly debates people who don't have the same worldviews on this topic. In 2017, Stephanie was a presenter for the series Talks at Google, speaking on abortion at Google headquarters in Mountain View, California. Stephanie is author of the book, Start With What? 10 Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide, as well as the book, Love Unleashes Life, Abortion and the Art of Communicating Truth. Let me tell you, I am absolutely honored. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today and speaking for those who don't have a voice and being an ambassador of hope for them. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, well, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Like, I am so excited to be with you. <laughs> I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to share you with all the audience and what mm. God's done in your life mm. um, and how we all can be a part of a unified voice uh, to speak for the unborn. Stephanie, would you first tell us, um, how did you come to know Jesus and get involved first in the pro-life movement? Yeah, two great questions. So I am so thankful to my parents because they really taught me who Jesus is and um, how he is my savior. And so I grew up in a very devout Catholic Christian home. And so my parents taught me to pray and they taught me to go to church and they taught me to read the Bible and all of these things that are beautiful and wonderful. And I would say, as amazing as it all was, I didn't really take it on on my own until I went to college. So I was raised in this beautiful environment. I loved the Lord. Jesus was integrated in my relationship with him into, into my daily life. But I went to college and I moved from a bubble into a very new environment. And suddenly I was surrounded by people who didn't know the Lord, who didn't believe what I believed, who were perhaps you could say even hostile to the views that I was saying I believed. And they were challenging me and asking me questions and I didn't have answers. I knew what I believed, but I couldn't defend why I believed it. And so I remember going through this crisis where when you're in that situation, you have one of two paths to take. You say, if I can't defend my views, I've been taught garbage and you abandon your faith. Or you say, if I can't defend my views, I need to do research. I need to look for answers. And then if you find them, then you embrace your faith even stronger. Mm. And so it was that second path that with God's grace, I chose. Um, my dad's originally from Scotland. I often say I'm a stubborn Scot. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I was like, I don't know how to explain my beliefs, but I know the explanations are out there. And so I was like, I'm going to search for them. <laughs> and so I searched for them. And so everything I'd been taught just take took on deep roots and... Um, I, I embraced it so fully, and Jesus is the Lord of my life. And, and then that then got translated into how do I live a life of love for Christ? What does that look like with the gifts he's given me and the setting he's placed me in and the people I know? And so that really got manifested in the pro-life movement and being a champion for pre-born children. And so my parents were really involved in the pro-life movement, and I learned about abortion from an early age. Mm -hmm. And I loved babies, and I hated what I learned abortion did to those babies. And so those two things together with the foundation of faith um, really helped me realize God was calling me 
to work full time in the pro-life movement. And so when I was in college and I took my faith on as my own, I met an American speaker who'd come to Canada. His name is Scott Klusendorf. And he said, there's more people working full time to kill babies than there are working full time to save them. Wow. Yeah. In that moment, it was like the Holy Spirit grabbed my heart. And as though God asked me, will you be one of the people working full time to save my children? And so long story short, I finished my college degree over the next three and a half years. What college degree was that? It was in, in the end, it was political science. I actually started in theater, okay, uh, okay. but I, I majored in poli-sci, an arts degree. Yep. And um, then through the mentorship of this speaker, I became a speaker. I've been described Scott as Scott in a skirt, although today I'm in pants. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I started giving talks in college and then went full time afterwards to yeah, be a champion for the youngest of our kind. Look, I'm a speaker, and I, I, I love always sharing the story of that first speech opportunity. I'm just so curious. I have to ask, how did that first door open? Did you knock on the door, and they said yes, or was it someone coming to you? Uh, did you feel like, ah. wow, this is big? I mean, look, speaking is big, right? You're, you're, yeah. you're going for theater. It ended up being political science. You didn't know that at the time. You're 18 years old. Right. I want the 18-year-olds to be listening to mm. this in the 18-year-old Stephanie Gray Connor. Tell yeah. me a little bit about yeah. that first speech and, and the moments before and then the moment after or something like I, I just yeah. I'm so curious. I love that you've asked that because yeah. it's making me go back yeah. 20, more than 20 years and be like, oh yeah, what was that first speech? So after I'd heard this, this man give a talk, Scott Klusendorf, I fl it was, the event was in Toronto, Canada. I flew back home to Vancouver, Canada. And um, my college campus had a conference, uh, like it was a religious conference, so it wasn't uh, an overall secular campus sure. conference. And someone came to me and said, look, you just went to this pro-life conference. Would you give a speech based on what you learned? So I like took the template of Scott's presentation Perfect. and I delivered it. And then, I mean, people were moved to tears. All these things were happening. So this is, again, as you know, like the Holy Spirit moment. So then someone in the audience is like, can you speak at this event? Yeah. And then I spoke at that event and someone in that audience was like, can you speak to my youth group? And then someone at the youth group was like, can you speak at our church? And can you, and then, it, yeah. I love it, I love right. it. Now that's taken you all around the world, yes. over a thousand pro-life presentations, mm -hmm. Stephanie. I'll never forget, it was recently where my team sat me down at the office mm -hmm. at Life Without Limbs and said, we want you to watch a video. And I'm like, cool. And so they watched, uh, I watched with them a clip of your uh, speech to um, uh, Google mm -hmm. and uh, the Google Talks little clip and I'm like oh awesome she's she's amazing she's fiery she's intelligent she's witty she's incredible at communicating this mm. message and to people that don't have our religious beliefs mm -hmm. you know also mm -hmm. some people who aren't religious also believe in the morality and understanding that it is based on your belief system as a human being mm -hmm. about the value of every single human being that starts at conception and so i'm listening to your speech and i'm like oh yeah cool and then you know 90 seconds later my team says hey no 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 just wait and i'm like okay and then you start talking about this nick voyage <laughs> and i'm like what? And I literally leaned in and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I've done mm -hmm. TED Talks um, mm -hmm. and I've wanted to do Google Talks. And here you are uh, sharing a part of my story mm -hmm. as part of the, the presentations that God has moved through you to tens of thousands of people, 
hundreds of thousands online. Mm -hmm. um, and I just felt, Stephanie, I want to say I'm, I was humbled that, that I, I know you reminded me that we did meet briefly in Calgary uh, years ago, but I had no idea. That was 12 years ago, you yeah. said, that we yeah. first met in Canada in Calgary. And then uh, we met together a limbless child. And yeah. um, that was that was beautiful. You were telling me the, the memories you have of that. But never did I ever think that at this point that a limbless man's story like mine could be actually the voice, the advocate without me speaking. That's yeah. to me a dream of dreams where I've done thousands of speeches. I've gone around the world. And I just want to tell you, I've been humbled when I saw that video. And I said, yes, Stephanie. Hallelujah. All glory to God. I'm so curious. How did you come to know of my story at mm. first? I'm just curious about that. Oh, yeah. I am so happy to share that. Like, it's such a God thing. Because, you know, you're probably like everyone else. We get tons of emails from people or, or, or you know, links. Look at this. Watch this. And you're like, I'm so busy. I don't have time to watch or do this or that that you're asking me to do. And it was probably maybe 06. Okay. Somewhere between 06 or 2010. Okay. Around the time I think you did your 60 Minutes Australia interview the okay. first time. Okay, okay. Um, and someone who supported a ministry I used to work for sent me an email uh, without any context and said, you have to watch the video of this guy. And I'm like, do I really have time for this? But praise God, I clicked on that link. It was the 60 Minutes Australia interview. I laughed. I cried. I was like, this man is amazing. And at the heart of my pro-life message and how I communicate it is through the power of stories. And one of the things I find when communicating on abortion is I'm I'm hearing people are concerned about justifying abortion because the circumstances for a pregnant woman are hard. They're really difficult. And at the, the core of what I'm trying to communicate in response to those people is we need the power of perspective to not only look at what's terrible and wrong and challenging in a situation, but look at what is amazing and wonderful and incredible that can come out of a situation. All that to put the context to, I saw your video and I thought, he lives the power of perspective. Mm. and. I was like, I need to use this message and these clips in my talks on abortion. So I, in my travels across Canada, the U.S., Scotland, England, I would play clips from that interview you did. And where I would stop it, I don't know if you remember this part of your interview. I have played it literally hundreds of times. <laughs> so I could probably give you the whole script in my head. But you, um, at one point, were asked by the interviewer, do you ever pray for arms and legs? Mm. And you looked at him. Do you remember what you said? I said, yes. You said, I have a pair of shoes in my closet. Yes, yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah, and I still have that. I actually just showed my son that last really? week. He's like, what? You have a pair of shoes? I love it. He's like, oh. Yeah, yeah. So you said, yes, I do. You said, every now and then I do. You said, but the joy of having no limbs. And then you said, if someone could pay me to take a magical pill to give me arms and legs right now, I wouldn't take it. And that's where I stopped the clip. And then after I play that clip, I say to the students, and I mean, these kids are 13 years old, they're 15 years old, they might be college students. I say to them, Nick couldn't always say that. I said, uh, there was a time, and I share the story of how you had been suicidal and you were in the bathtub and you thought about rolling over and drowning yourself. And I said, he saw a perspective of his life that was dark and depressing and had no hope but that's not his life now. And I talk about how you're married and you have kids and you travel the world and you inspire people. And I said, 
he has not changed his situation. He still lacks the limbs today that he lacked in the bathtub. So what's changed? His perspective, how he views the situation. Instead of seeing all the negative, he sees an incredible opportunity to move the hearts of people in a way you wouldn't if you had arms and legs. And so I set that up then to communicate the message about perspective and then say the pregnant girl who's overwhelmed by this unplanned pregnancy is only seeing the negative, the darkness, the things that make her feel like there's no hope. And instead of eliminating the child, we want to eliminate the bad perspective. We want to help her see, no, this is an opportunity to love an individual, the preborn child, in, in a very unique way, in a way no one else can. Only the mother who's pregnant can keep that child alive. Um, and so I, I use that to set the stage for how your power of perspective is something that we want to all follow and embrace in our own lives and say, how can I change my perspective if I can't change my circumstances? The attitude is everything. And, you know, and then I'll tell a story. I, I met a college student who had an unplanned pregnancy, considered abortion, mm. carried to term, loves her daughter. And she said to me, Stephanie, she's like, if I'd had an abortion, I'd still be working in a dead end job. She said it was having my child that caused me to work really hard at school, to have a different career, to do all of these things in dreams. Like my, my daughter motivated me. So her circumstances didn't change, her perspective changed, and that is what changed her life. So, so I, I just praise God for you. And, and I have seen in the surveys, I survey all my audiences, I have stacks of surveys this high, the number of times when students were asked, you know, what stands out most in the presentation they would write the guy without arms and legs um, wow. so the Lord has moved mightily through you amazing glad yeah. that we can partner that way yeah. for the unborn and yes. thank you so much for being that voice mm. Stephanie um, over the years you've become absolutely powerful mm. um, in exactly how you present the content of your stance mm. um, for the unborn um, and you've had those debates where every question um, has been thrown at you and uh, God's given you the response um, that you know is true um, and I just wanted to give an example a couple mm. questions for people who obviously would like to know you know when someone says well is it is it really an embryo conception uh, you know at that point where the the sperm uh, enters into the wall of the egg, mm -hmm. right? I'm going to yeah, use layman's yeah. terms right. and everyone else's medical terms. I understand that. But the bottom line is, I mean, I, I wanted to hear from you to share with your audience. Mm. What about that debate for the people around us who don't believe that life begins at conception mm. or challenging that? Yeah, great question. So when people question that, what I say is, well, let's look at the science. What does science say for when life begins? We know, for example, that you and I are living human beings. So biologically, when did we, the living human beings that we are, begin our lives? And if you look at science textbooks, embryology textbooks, whether it's at a high school level or a college level or a med school level, consistently across the board, we're taught beings which reproduce sexually begin their lives at fertilization, begin their lives at sperm egg fusion. 
And we know that that makes sense because before fertilization, when you have sperm and egg by themselves, they are mere parts of a human, the sperm part of a man, the egg, the part of a woman. But when they come together, the genetic information which distinguishes me from you, that is determined in that moment. And no longer do you have parts of a human, but you have a whole human. The um, features about us that, that we will develop as we mature are determined at that moment. And what we need from that point forward is time. Mm -hmm. And as the time passes, then we will increase our size, we'll increase our level of development. Our environment will change a lot and will decrease our dependency. The older we become, generally the more independent we become, although there comes a point as we get really old that the dependency circle swings back uh, to the beginning. But the point is we change our size, our level of development, our environment, our dependency, but we don't change who we are as being genetically distinct from our parents and from everyone else around us. That was determined at the moment of fertilization. Mm -hmm. and, and our human rights are grounded in being human, not in how big we are, how developed we are, or how independent we are. And so since we are of the same species as our parents, homo sapiens, at fertilization, since we are alive, because if we're growing, which we are at fertilization, then we must be living, then it follows that that living human being who's smaller than the rest of us mm. has the same right to life as the rest of us because the right to life isn't grounded in how big we are. Great. The next question right after yeah. that would be the people who say, well, what about the women's rights mm. who don't have the desire to have a baby? Um, there's different categories and tiers that many people have said, well, what about rape and incest. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard of all the different cases. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know how would you, and I know that's a loaded question, Yes. so take your time, sure. but that I think is, is one of the biggest arguments for anyone who do not uh, agree with you and me mm -hmm. on exactly what you just said to understand that each unborn child has the right to live. What about the women's rights? Yeah, good question. So when people talk about women's rights, I like to respond with a question and say, do we have a right to do what is wrong? Uh, I might say this whole interview, I have a right to, to swing my arms. Now that might be very annoying for you and all the viewers, <laughs> but these are my arms and if I wanna do this, then I have a right to do it. But what if I decided to stand up walk towards you and swing my arms to the point that I hit you in the nose. You know, everyone in the studio here is gonna run and stop me and pull me back. And what if I responded to them by saying, hey, these are my arms. I have a right to do with my arms what I want. And you and everyone else observing the situation would say, wait a minute, your right to swing your arms stops when you're gonna hit someone else in the nose. So we don't just have a right to do anything we want. If the thing we're claiming we want to do harms another human being, we may not do it. So the question is, when a woman's pregnant, is it just her body or is there another body involved? And so what I like ask, to ask people to consider in answering that is, when someone doesn't wanna be pregnant and they think they might be and they take a test and it's negative, do they ever go to an abortion clinic? And people always say, well, no, it's a negative pregnancy test. Then I say, okay, well, what if the test is positive? Would that person consider going to an abortion clinic if they don't wanna be pregnant? And people will say, well, yeah, probably. And then I would say, what's the difference between the negative test and the positive test? And the answer is the negative test is telling her, it's just your body. The positive test is telling her, there's another body here. 
It's not just your own, your own body anymore. Someone else is present. So then the question becomes, since we know there's another body there, do we have a right to use our body to dismember and decapitate and disembowel the body of a baby? And I think we know if I can't use my arm to hit you in the nose, then we may not use the uh, permission we give to the abortionist to vilely enter our bodies to destroy the baby's body. We may not, we may not do that either. So validating that the little human being is a little human being mm -hmm. within the first six weeks. I mean, the whole incremental pro-life bills right. versus us actually understanding that it is killing another human being. Mm -hmm. So many people uh, don't understand that when you do, under law, kill another human being, it is murder. Right. So the validity of knowing that that little human being mm. um, is a human being, as we allow that fetus to form, um, it, we understand that it's not just her body, mm -hmm. it's not just matter in her womb, mm -hmm. it is another human being. Um, we all who are on the pro-life movement understand that we want to end abortion. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much it bothers you, um, but let me just say it this way. I find it very difficult to, um, I'm not putting other people down when they celebrate heartbeat bills mm. being passed. However, my heart goes to, wait a second, it's almost as if those incremental versus abolishing it, mm. you look back at slavery, there was even a point where some states allowed uh, slavery and some states abolished slavery mm. before it was abolished federally. Mm. And so we know that the world is really different on their vast stances mm. um, from incremental things to even viability um, of the fetus itself. Uh, I'll never forget, um, when our doctors, when Kane was pregnant with our first, um, and even our second, mm. uh, our doctor couldn't believe we didn't want to do um, a test for the chromosomes to at least know if our baby's going to have Down syndrome. I know, we didn't do that test either. Why? Why do it? Right. They're like, well, don't you want to know? I'm like, well, no, it's totally fine mm -hmm. to know if our child comes with down syndrome or not we believe that as as big of a mountain that would be um in our spirit in our heart in our mind in our learning and understanding and educating uh, ourselves just like my parents didn't know that i was going to be born this way mm -hmm. uh, they had that community they had that faith they had that belief system that no matter how their child is born um physically um uh, with mental disabilities to physical disabilities to even the doctors. I know many people, as I know you do, who were told by the doctors, listen, your baby is not going to even be born with some vital organs and your baby might die within a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. We have friends who understand, and that's our belief system, that we leave it up to God to do everything you can to stand and, 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 and trust in the Lord that even in um, extreme circumstances of a viability or even extreme circumstances of rape and incest. Mm. I know a 13, uh, someone who was 13 got raped, mm. uh, was homeless, got raped, chose to 
keep her baby on the streets and she struggled through it but she said God use my child to get me through that because now I know I'm not just living for me and God helped me to believe that there was still hope for me and my child when we believe in the God that we believe in and we look at the world who doesn't have the faith like us you've got the extremes of Poland that does believe that every life has value, that there is an uh, abolishment in some countries Mm -hmm. around the world. Then you have countries like Iceland. In 2016, in Iceland, the National Press Conference, the government proudly, and I put it on my social media, I was disgusted, to, 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 for them to, as a government, tell their nation, um, we are so happy we can report to our whole country, we've eradicated every Down syndrome child in our nation. What does that mean? That any test that was done that was proven with the chromosome difference mm-hmm. uh, compared to the majority of the society in Iceland, um, that they didn't see that human being as viable. Mm-hmm. When we look at all of these things, um, tell us about these extreme mm-hmm. cases Um, or even your experiences of the viability factor, Mm. the burden to the person who was raped, Mm -hmm. to to be reminded of that rape every day, Um, uh, you know, in in some of the psychological uh, tragedies. This is all very tragic. These are real circumstances, real human beings. Um, And there are other people that have other words of saying, well, why should someone's crime give the death sentence to an unborn child? Mm-hmm. Very big question, very heavy loaded, very broad. Mm-hmm. Stephanie, what's your answer on that? Yeah, uh, all, of these, all of these kind of hot topics that are related to abortion, I think is so important that we enter into the great spirit of sensitivity and compassion for those who find themselves in these circumstances. Like you mentioned, that 13-year-old girl who was raped. Uh, I have a friend who's a public speaker, Leanna Revelito, who who got raped at the age of 12 and also kept her baby. And her daughter grew up to become her best friend and she you know, raised that child. But in no way do these powerful stories take away the brutality of the sexual assault. No. The evil that was inflicted upon these poor women, these, these children, these young girls, really. So we need to first acknowledge these are really hard, terrible circumstances for anyone to be in. And the, the sin that was committed against these individuals was sin. It was wrong. It should never have happened. The question we want to ask after acknowledging that is, will abortion unrape a rape victim? Will it undo what's happened? Will it take away the trauma? The reality is it won't. We, we can't go back in history and undo what has happened. So if we can't undo what has happened, the question then becomes, is it ethical to give the death penalty to the innocent child? A consequence we don't even give to the guilty rapist himself. And I think we all know that it is never ethical to give the death penalty to an innocent child. Some people would say you should never give the death penalty to a guilty person. And there's debate about the guilt, the guilty individual. Do we give them the death penalty or not? But on that debate, uh, while there are two sides, both sides of the, uh, the death penalty debate, you could say, come together in agreement on something. And what they agree on is the death penalty should never be given to the innocent. So they debate, should the guilty get it or not? I don't know. What, what should the case be? And that's a whole other issue. But they come together and say, but we should never give the death penalty to the innocent. 
And so when someone's pregnant, there's an innocent child in that woman's body. You know, something that's very interesting that I came across several years ago is uh, the United Nations has a document called the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and it stipulates what it thinks are standards for civil societies. And it says in countries where the death penalty is legal, it may never be done on a pregnant woman. Wow. Fascinating, oh, that's right? Because if you have a woman who's committed a crime that in her country, this country says is worthy of the death penalty, and you have another woman in that same country who's committed the same crime, and therefore her consequence would be the death penalty, but one of those women is not pregnant and the other woman is, and the woman who's not pregnant gets the death penalty, but the pregnant woman doesn't, both of the women are guilty. Why the different reaction? It's because in the body of one of those two women who are guilty, we acknowledge if she's pregnant is an innocent child. And if she's given the death penalty, then that means we're giving it to an innocent party as well. Now, again, I'm not wading into the death penalty issue, but rather bringing it up as an analogy or a focal point to help us realize, whoa, we all intuitively know we should never directly and intentionally end the life of an innocent child. And so if abortion does that, then we may not act on that, even though people have been victimized in horrible ways, like victims of rape or victims of incest. We need to love these people. We need to give them compassion and counseling and help. Abortion, however, doesn't do that. In, in, in no way does it address what has happened. It just creates another victim. It, it reminds me, I have a friend uh, who is post-abortive. She had an abortion, has come to regret it, but she had the abortion after she was raped. And she said to me, Stephanie, Healing after the abortion was harder than healing after the rape. Mm. I didn't choose the rape, but I chose the abortion. So there's something to be said for when we harm another versus when we ourselves are harmed, right? You can be a victim, which is terrible and horrible, but then you can be a victimizer. And we all know, whoa, you shouldn't victimize other people, whether or not you yourself have been a victim. Yeah, you, you're 100% correct. And that's where my blood starts to boil about when we say um, speaking, community, counseling, encouragement. Um, I, as a Christian, uh, look at the church of mm -hmm. all denominations who stand on um, pro-life mm. um, and and we applaud on on two things I want to say but the first one I just want to say something I didn't say before mm -hmm. that really got me angry in that room of a pro-life gala fundraising gala mm -hmm. um, you know we're, we're clapping to to go get it down to 18 week heart bill down to six week heart bills I understand that but I can't celebrate um, those incremental bills, because as you know, we could talk about the, the, the audacity, the evil of late-term abortions. I've had a friend who spoke to parliament, state government representatives in a public scene, um, speaking to the government about how bad late-term abortions are at, and they literally publicly laughed right in front of her in mm. Parliament in Australia. And I, there are some disgusting laws of mm. 
those late-term abortions, that same thing in some states in America. And, but at the same time, I can't applaud when, let's say I'm, a, I'm in a village and the king says, I want to kill children. We're going to sacrifice children. Uh, but you Christians, you don't believe that that's right. So I'm going to actually change the law because you were a squeaky wheel. Um, uh, and we're not going to kill children from 9 to 5. We're going to kill children mm. 9 to 3 p.m. Um, how can I, as a Christian who believes that all of that is still murder, applaud? And that's that frustration. But even more so, Stephanie, what I want you to really answer for our viewers here is this question. So many people are silently regretting yeah. about their decision that they did have control over, whereas, as you just stipulated, a rape, she had no choice to be raped, mm -hmm. a victim of rape, mm -hmm. terrible, mm -hmm. but yet there are many who silently suffer with PTSD uh, because of that guilt, shame, condemnation. Right. Um, the church, we don't really even talk about this. There's a percentage of many abortions. We know that, you know, it's more than 77 million abortions that America has done. 77 million sounds big. Well, let me just tell everyone that California does not count surgical abortions as an abortion. Mm. And there are other stipulations where the numbers are not true, but whether it's 44 million, 77 million, it is our responsibility who do believe that every unborn child has value. Talking about the victims of the women of uh, rape or even they um, were a Christian, they went to church, yeah. they dated a Christian uh, person and they were sexually intimate, they fell pregnant, they wanted to hide the guilt and the shame of their mistake and unrighteousness before God. That's why we're telling all the Gen Z, sex ain't love, you can sleep with anyone you want as many times you want and still not find love. If you're a couple that actually does believe in God uh, and you love Him and He loves the Lord, well then if He loves the Lord, then He's going to honor you and God mm -hmm. in that relationship. And if we can't honor the Lord in His law and righteousness before we get married and fail to be the honorable man of God unto God, putting God first in your relationship now, mm -hmm. how do you think that He's going to actually be the husband and father that you really need that puts God first for you? in his marriage with you and the decisions for your own bloodline, the children. Mm. Um, and so all of this to say the church, um, we don't even talk about it, Stephanie, talk to mm. all the church, the church members, whether it's a, a purity message that disappeared as far as I'm concerned 15 years ago to tickle the ears and water down a lot yeah. of the stuff that we're trying to make church a more pleasant, approachable, loving, oh, let's love. But then for the sake of love, we put truth out of the room. Right. Talk to us as believers and as the church of America. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to yeah. unpack there. But what's so important is, is 
in, in talking about the need to love others, what is love? To will the other's good. In, in the need to love others and be compassionate and be patient and kind, as Paul talks about in his letter to Corinthians, um, there's been this movement to shift away from anything which makes us uncomfortable or <laughs> doesn't tickle our ears. Or And we have to remember, wait, God is a God of love, but he's a God of justice. Mercy and justice, we, we, we put them both together. It's not just, you know, speak harsh truths and, and walk away. It's not just hold someone's hand but accept the sin that they're doing. It's not doing that at all. We can't accept sin. It's about bringing justice and mercy together, love and compassion together. Um, when you talk about, you know, in our own churches, you know, how, how young Christians might be in sexually active situations outside of marriage and then getting pregnant and considering abortion, I'm reminded how how far back in history we can go with parallels today as from the past, and that is in the Old Testament with David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. Uh, Uriah is the husband of Bathsheba. He's off at war. David sees Bathsheba bathing. What does he do? He lusts after her, has sex with her. She becomes pregnant, but her husband's been away. What could explain this pregnancy? So then David is like, oh shoot, what do I do now? So he tries to conceal his sex sin by bringing Uriah back from battle, expecting he will go to his wife, have sex with her, so that the subsequent, the known pregnancy will be perceived as his child, not David's. But Uriah doesn't go to his wife. And so what does David then do? He kills to conceal sex sin. He kills to conceal sex sin. He arranges for Uriah to be put to the head of the battle. And uh, Uriah is killed. David takes Bathsheba as his wife to cover the sex sin. Abortion is a modern day version of that story. It is killing to conceal sex sin. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is... David in his Psalms, create in me a clean heart, O God. He realized his sin. He repented of it. And so it's so important that as we impart the truth, we need to impart about the wrongness of abortion, how it violates God's laws. It hurts the heart of God and it hurts us. At the same time, we want to remind people God is merciful. He sent Jesus to suffer and die so that that sin of abortion, like all our other sins, can be forgiven. Um, a, a very powerful experience I had of this was when years ago I spoke in Riga, Latvia, and it was at a YWAM event, Youth with a Mission, and it was a combined event uh, on educating on human trafficking and abortion. And I was really excited to go to Eastern Europe. I've always had this affinity with Eastern Europe. I just think it's such an amazing part of the world and so much history. And so there I am with uh, people from, it was, although it was in Latvia, a lot of people were from various different Eastern European countries. And so before my talk, we were doing praise and worship. It was so cool because it's the tunes we know and I'm singing in English and someone next to me is singing in Russian and someone else is singing in Latvian, but we're united in this one faith. Um, and we were in a basement room. And so because it was below ground, the only window was at the top of the wall. And so as we're doing praise and worship, I could see out the window to the sidewalk where I could just see people's feet walking past. Mm. And I got an image in my mind as I was singing in prayer. And it was the image of the blood-soaked earth of Eastern Europe. Because there, it is very common for women to have eight, nine, and ten abortions each. Not just one or two. And I just thought about... The earth of Eastern Europe, it is soaked with the blood of children and people are just walking, walking over it. And so I started to weep and I, I really couldn't stop. I mean, I, we could hold it together, but I thought, oh my gosh, I have to give a talk in like two hours and I just want to cry. So I'm like, come on, Lord, come on, Lord, like help me, help me keep it together. 
Then the event organizer came to me. It was a lunch break, and I was right after lunch to give my talk. And she said, Stephanie, are you all ready? And I started, <laughs> I burst into tears. I'm like, Tanya, I don't know what's wrong. I can't stop crying. And I told her about this image I got. And she said, Stephanie, um, the Lord might have given you tears so that you cry the tears. Some people have not allowed themselves to cry over mm. these children. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, but I don't want to. I'm a professional. Like, I, I don't want to. And she said, why don't you just stay here for lunch? We're all going to go away. Just be quiet and be in prayer. So I was, you know, I read through the Psalms, which I find very consoling in those moments. But I did pray that God would take away the gift of tears. <laughs> and I did not want to get in front of the audience and cry. So my talk began and I was fine. I had it all together. I was, you know, going along as I always do. And then I got to the part of the talk where I was going to show abortion victim photography. And I was going to let the audience see the blood of these children. And then the tears came. And while I was able to still communicate, I was so visibly hurting over what I was talking about. And I was embarrassed, but I thought, okay, God, I'm your instrument. Use me however you want. At the end of the talk, and I had a translator translating for the audience. At the end of the talk, Tanya came up to me and she said, Stephanie, there's a young man who wants to speak to you, but he only, uh, he doesn't know English and he wants to communicate in Russian. So I will translate for you. I said, okay, great. And he said through her translating, uh, I've had a very rough life. He goes, I was involved in gang activity, all kinds of things. He goes, but I'm here because I'm a Christian. I, I, I came to know the Lord and I had this profound conversion. And he said, uh, but there was something in your talk, he said, and he started to weep. He said, I was involved in the abortion of my own child. And he said, I never, when I became a Christian, I never thought to repent of that. He said, but your presentation today gave me new eyes to see what I have done. And he said, I want in the presence of you and Tanya, in the presence of witnesses, I want to repent to God for the sin that I have been involved in. And Nick, to, to, to have gone through kind of just spiritually what I'd gone through and the wrestling with the being vulnerable to my audience and then to see this man in his vulnerability and, and to be present in such a sensitive moment for him um, was, was very profound and very touching. And, and it comes to mind as something I want to share for any listeners who like him have been involved in abortion, whether they did it when they were Christians whether they did it when they weren't Christians. The point is that if you become convicted of this, don't be someone who despairs. Mm. Um, be someone who trusts in Jesus. Mm. Be someone who runs to the foot of the cross and is cleaned with the blood of the lamb. Um, remember that God is a merciful God. And as that man could be convicted and not despair, think of Judas and Peter, right? How they both betrayed Christ. And Judas despair, but what did Peter do afterwards? He repented because what did Jesus say to him when he returned? Be, feed my sheep, mm. feed my sheep, mm. Peter, feed my sheep. He, Jesus empowered Peter when he knew he had been a betrayer. And he basically said, I don't just want to forgive you. I want to transform you, Peter, feed my sheep, lead my church, be a martyr like me. That's essentially what he was communicating to him. And so if that's what Peter could do, he could betray God himself and then be transformed and be this mighty force in the early church.
That's the message for all of us. That's the message for the post-abortive woman or man, that you can be forgiven and set free. You can be redeemed, um, but you have to admit it. And that's what Peter did. We have to admit, I'm a sinner, but I need a savior. And then when we do that, hold on to your hands. Like, yes. Jesus will do amazing things and he will use you as a mighty force to transform the world. Stephanie, your powerful book, Abortion and the Art of Communicating Truth. Tell us more about that book and, mm. and how you, in a loving way, really confront this big, sensitive topic. Mm. Well, you know what? I actually start off in the introduction with a way I didn't handle a conversation well. I was talking to a guy and he was making all these arguments and instead of being patient and kind, as Paul advises us in Corinthians, it's kind of being short and kind of snippy. And he called me out. He said, you're being mean. Mm. And praise God, I was given a grace in that moment to, instead of defend, no, I'm not, you know, I was given a grace to be like, you know what? I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah. I shouldn't be coming across that way. So the book is basically, don't do that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and here's instead what we should do. And what we should do, I talk about, is model or follow the model of Jesus. And when Jesus interacted with people and he spoke with them, what did he do? Two things in particular. He asked questions and he told stories. So he was continually using that Socratic approach. Socrates, in his great, great quest for truth, asked people questions. Why? Because when you ask someone a question, they think, what's the answer? And then you get the wheels turning, and we want to get people thinking. Right. And so we ask people questions. The second thing we do that, that Jesus did is he told parables. He, he would always tell stories that would tap into people's imaginations, characters they related to or understood, settings that they could visualize. And then he would insert a principle within the setting, within the characters, within the story that people could sense a familiar spirit with. And so in the same way, when we want to talk to people about abortion, what questions can we ask and what parables or stories can we tell to make the message more easy to embrace? And so the book then gives a whole bunch of questions and a whole bunch of stories uh, for people to bring to, to conversations. Amazing, amazing. Stephanie, we have an incredible following on TikTok. We mm. know that you're very vocal about this and you have a heart for the next generation to hear um, all of what you need to communicate to us for the legacy of change to happen in our country and outside of America. Speak right now to mm -hmm. the Gen Z crowd, um, yeah. the young people who um, have not really uh, been immersed in some of these conversations, how important it is in your message to the mm -hmm. next generation. I think my message to the next generation is remember it's young people that often change the world. Mm. You know, you look even at the, the abolitionists in Great Britain, William Wilberforce, Thomas Clarkson, these men who a couple hundred years ago brought an end to the slave trade and slavery were very young when they started. Um, people who, you know, resisted the Nazis. Often there's, there's some great, there's a, a woman, uh, Irena Sendler. Um, she was a young social worker who uh, helped rescue children uh, during the Holocaust. Young people, you have energy, power, and perhaps less fear than and when people get older. They're like, what will happen to me if I do this or that? And, and so be bold, be courageous. You know, I've heard it once said, courage is not an absence of fear, 
but a will to do what's right in spite of your fear. Mm -hmm. So for any TikTok listeners who are like, I'm afraid to post this video, or I'm afraid to talk to my friend in the flesh, in person, or I'm afraid to do this. No, be bold. You might have fear, but, but rise above that fear and say, I'm going to do the right thing anyways, and then connect with like-minded people so you know you're not alone. Because when we know we're part of a tribe of people who share that conviction, who want to be courageous, um, and who will speak up, and who will make a difference, who will go, as you mentioned, to um, a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic and pray outside of it. Mm. And, and, and trust that that presence can literally save lives. There was uh, someone, I read a story of this guy who was praying outside a Planned Parenthood clinic and a couple were walking in and he said, God bless you both. And then he realized, wait, they're pregnant. And he said, I mean, God bless you three. They walked in. They couldn't get that last sentence out wow. of their head. God bless you three. God bless you three. They walked out and told him that they decided not to have the abortion. Hallelujah. So for your TikTok listeners to, to realize there's a platform they're a part of, but then to get out in the streets, in the public square, on the sidewalk, and engage the public in a courageous and compassionate way. For those who are watching right now, they get it. They got it. Um, they want to be an advocate. Mm. A champion for the unborn, a mm -hmm. champion for the brokenhearted. Um, how does someone in their own community, wherever they're mm. watching from right now, how do they become a champion for the unborn? Mm. Um, how do they become an advocate? What does it mean to be an advocate for those who don't have a voice yet? Mm. Three ways, I think. Uh, starting with prayer, study, and then action. Mm. Uh, prayer years ago, a spiritual director of mine encouraged me to read a book called The Soul of the Apostolate. And its whole premise is when you're involved in apostolic activity, when you're involved in ministry, you can get so focused on the scripture passage, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, that you add something to the scriptures that isn't there, which is, so I better get on out in the harvest and do everything that the other harvesters aren't around to do. And the scriptures say, no, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, Pray, therefore, mm. that the Lord of the harvest will send more laborers into his harvest. Pray. The first word there is pray. And then within this book, it gives, gives this great illustration from, I think it was a monk, St. Bernard, years ago, centuries ago, who said, we are to be reservoirs, not channels. He said, a reservoir, the water just goes through, uh, sorry, a channel, rather, the channel, the water just flows through. And he says, that's like the busy soul in ministry activity who's going, 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 doing, doing, doing. They see there's not enough people. They're taking upon more upon themselves than they should. And they become a danger to their apostolic ministry-based activity because it's on their power that they're running. That's the channel. He goes, a reservoir is different. With that body of water, a reservoir fills up and the excess overflows. And he said, that is the soul of the apostolate. That is what we are to be like. When we're going to go and make disciples of all nations and teach people all that God has commanded, including his commands to love the least of these and the vulnerable among us, um, we want to remember that we want to be still and know that God is God. Amen. Allow ourselves to be filled up with the Holy Spirit and let that overflow. So step one for anyone listening is that. Step two, we've now, we're filled with the Spirit we want to fill our minds. As I said, when I was in college, that's when I was challenged on my, on my faith. And I realized I need explanations for why I believe what I believe. So, so do your homework, do your research, look for the explanations behind the hard questions like rape and other things related to this topic. And then remember, 
prayer and action. So we've prayed, we've studied, now we act. So start with your own sphere of influence. Who right around you might be approaching you or has approached you and asked you what you think? They may have said, can you drive me to the abortion clinic? This is your chance to not only say, no, I can't do that, but to say why you can't do that and to try to implore them to change their mind so they don't get someone else and that instead you help them welcome this new little life into their lives. Um, to contact your local pro-life organization. You might have a pregnancy center in town that is helping pregnant women volunteer there. You might want to go to school to become a counselor to counsel mm -hmm. at a place like that. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe the Lord has given you a more political mindset where you want to make the law reflect what is true and just and good. So go to college for that and then be committed to being a voice for the, the pre-born in our midst, for these brokenhearted um, who, who can be... Uh, restored and protected, even though the law currently does not protect them in, in, in most of the world. So uh, maybe you're called to be an educator like me uh, and give talks. But you know, what I often tell people is, yes, you might be called to make your career pro-life work on a full-time basis, but everyone is called, regardless of only some being called to that, everyone is called to live the pro-life message. So that means helping the people in their midst, influencing them, informing them, inspiring them, talking to them. If you're a doctor, you don't need to be a pro-life speaker, but when a, client, a patient comes to you and says, I wanna have an abortion, in that moment, you have a lot of power and you can use that power for evil or for good. I had someone contact me from an audience. He said, Stephanie, I need help. He goes, I heard your talk. A friend of mine is considering abortion. I wanna know what to do to, to help convince her not to abort. I said, okay, well, the first thing we need to do is get her to a pro-life doctor. He said, I did that. I took her to my Christian doctor friend and she walked out with the number to the abortion clinic. Wow. So don't be a doctor like that, but realize that as that doctor had power, you have power if you're a physician. And so you can instead have a, a patient walk out of your office with not only a number to a pregnancy center, but the conviction that they can return to you for their prenatal visits, knowing that you will walk with them through that journey, walk with them through that pregnancy. If you're a pastor, Preach on this issue, preach truth and love. Yes, communicate what abortion does, but then communicate the mercy and the love of Jesus as we have talked about it. So wherever you're stationed, use that position and the people you know to share what you've learned from studying, which has come from a place of prayer. Amen. I want everyone to understand that yes, they can send their youth to a missions trip to their local Planned Parenthood and just pray over that facility mm. that they can as a church help their local crisis pregnancy center where ultrasounds the stats are roughly 70 percent of the women who were abortion determined um, they actually chose life after seeing the ultrasound at the local crisis pregnancy center yeah. near our church so mm. many ways that we could be a sphere of uh, influence with the communities that we have mm -hmm. um, and and when your pastor says oh we can't talk about political things that's too sensitive challenge them and even if at that point they don't do anything different the question is then you understand that you are the church amen yes, so for amen. Anyone, <laughs> amen so Stephanie um, tell us some linchpin organizations uh, that are mm. leading um, moving the needle organizations that people can can uh, check out their organization and talk to us about 
what you're doing, your work, and your books as well. Sure. So there are the, the good news is there are a lot of pro-life organizations out there that people can plug into and get connected with and do activism with. Uh, my dear friend, Lila Rose, um, I know you know yeah. Lila. Uh, she actually, uh, I not only have to credit her for, for helping find my husband, she set me up with my husband. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I didn't know that connection. But I have to credit her for, for helping save my baby. Um, my, my first child, my husband and I lost through miscarriage. And when I was pregnant a second time um, with my baby now, Violet, um, several friends said to me, you should get your progesterone checked because low progesterone can lead to miscarriage. And so I had mine checked and my levels were dropping. And I thought, oh my goodness, we're going to miscarry this baby. And I contacted Lila and I said, Lila, do you know any doctor who can get me on progesterone like right away? And literally like she made an instant connection to an amazing physician, Dr. George Delgado. And he put me on progesterone that night and I didn't miscarry that baby. And now Violet, who you'll meet after this interview, uh, exists. So Lila's group, all that to say, I, I, she's just a dear friend of mine. But um, Lila has a group called Live Action and they're just making an incredible impact on society. And so I highly recommend them. There's a lot of good student movement groups. Students for Life of America is working with high school students and college students. Um, created Equal Justice for All, these groups are, are getting out and doing campus exhibits and all kinds of things. So, I mean, there's just so many out there that, that I could mention, but uh, the key is to find that local group and to plug in with them. And um, if you're savvy online, there might be a group that's not local, but you can work with them through social media and, and different things like that. Uh, as you mentioned, if people want to get in touch with me, my ministry name is, is my book name on abortion. It's Love Unleashes Life. Because um, in my experience, when someone is loved, it changes them and it frees them to be fully alive. And so when we love the pregnant woman, we can literally unleash the life of her preborn child. But when we love the post-abortive woman or man, we can see life be unleashed spiritually, where they've moved from despair to hope. So loveunleasheslife.com is where people can reach me. And if, if you've done the praying and you want to do the studying, I have a whole list of apologetics resources. Uh, my books are available, the links to where to order them. So loveunleasheslife.com is how people can stay connected with me. Amen. Stephanie, it's been an incredible time with you. Thank you so much for speaking straight to the hearts of each and every one of us. May God bless you. And it's such an honor to have had this time with you on this show, Never Thank Change. You. Thank you so much. Yes. Uh, everyone, I am so overwhelmed with gratefulness, with thanksgiving, that the Holy Spirit would convict your heart in talking to him right after you watch this. Pray about God. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to be a voice? How do you want me to research more and be a part of your cry out to your children to go and save the unborn? I love you. Don't give up on God. God will not give up on you. And may he help us in our sphere of influence with our church or not. We are the hands and feet of God. And we, if we are willing, he will give us all that we need to go and be the champion for the unborn. God bless you. Thanks for watching. And I'll see you next time.